What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Dolver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, if you podcast long enough, inevitably you're going to find yourself, uh, you know, witness to major history. And I think that's what we've seen here over the last week and the days since George Floyd's death uh, in police custody in Minneapolis. We have seen protests, occasional uh, riots um, across the country from New York to Los Angeles to Atlanta, hundreds of cities uh, in between. Um, with you know potentially no end in sight here as we uh, record on Monday, it's a truly stunning time. Uh, you know, it, it's the type of thing that has recalled 1968 uh, for a lot of commentators. It's taken on an added degree of complexity, I think, because of the ongoing uh, coronavirus crisis and the economic uh, uh, fallout from you know rising unemployment numbers and everything else. It's just a crazy time, uh, point blank period, Michael. I'm curious. Uh, What was your weekend like? I know we saw a lot of people around the NBA community, whether it was former players uh, like Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Doc Rivers, current players, LeBron James, Jalen Brown, Malcolm Brogdon, Lonnie Walker, all participating or or voicing their concerns or or leading protests or leading cleanup efforts in some cases. Um, So it was quite the response from the NBA community. But I think that you and I just need to have kind of a heart-to-heart conversation here, man. What was your weekend like as we sit in the middle of what I think is going to go down as a you know pretty uh, t- you know, tough moment of American history? Yeah, so I think regular listeners of this podcast know that I live in Brooklyn. Um, but uh, as I mentioned on a recent episode, uh, uh, my wife and I drove to Michigan, where she is from, to visit uh, my in-laws and her parents. So we got out of downtown Brooklyn where we live uh, on Thursday uh, and have, I guess you could say serendipitously avoided uh, some of the mayhem and uh, unfortunate uh, peaceful protests turned into rioting, turned into clashes with the NYPD um, and kind of uh, just destruction and and mayhem. And uh, so we were, I guess, fortunate, you could say. but the way that I viewed this weekend from afar, uh, not that, uh, you know, we're in the suburbs of Detroit. Detroit has also been impacted with its own form of protests and rioting. Um, but the way I just view it is, you know, as you were kind of alluding to, this is just kind of a perfect storm moment in a lot of ways. Uh, you have uh, a lot of people, millions of people hundreds of millions of people uh, who have been in quarantine for about two months, locked in their houses. Um, You have 120,000 people dead from COVID-19. You have 40 million people unemployed, uh, probably even more than that. Uh, You have most businesses still closed. And you figure a global pandemic would be cause for change in terms of empathy and understanding among the masses and and, and something that could appeal to uh, our greater qualities as human beings. But instead, what we have in the middle of it is another racist cop murdering a black man in a senseless act of violence that was avoidable and it was unnecessary. And I just think that when people started to see that video and when it came out, it just kind of lit a fuse and what we're seeing is just uh, the the aftermath of that. 
No, we're seeing cities burning uh, coast to coast. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, it's just happening over the course of the entire weekend. And you understand the frustration and you understand the anger. You know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a really nice um, essay for the Los Angeles Times where he's sort of trying to put um, protesters and even rioters into context and to understand these people have just been pushed beyond their breaking point, right? And this isn't just a matter of a couple months here. And it's been a very, very rough couple months, no question, in the United States. But this is hundreds of years, right, of buildup. And uh, on, on this particular police brutality issue, um, decades of simmering tension here recently where there has been momentum sort of growing uh, within the African-American community about basically saying enough is enough. And here you have, a, like you said, a perfect storm where uh, everyone is is primed uh, to explode in unhappiness and anger and frustration, uh, and in some cases fear. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. You know, you, you mentioned uh, what was going on in Brooklyn. You know, here in Los Angeles, there's been extended uh, protests throughout the weekend. Uh, my neighborhood has not been impacted yet, although they did put us on a 6 p.m. curfew uh, for the last couple of nights, which I tell you, you know, we, we got a lot of messages, Michael, from the Open Floor Globe sort of warning us about the coronavirus, uh, you know, coming to America and how to prepare and everything else. And I appreciate those global listeners so much. But when mm-hmm. you were reading those numbers, 120,000 dead, 40 million unemployment, the fact that we're on daily curfews, um, you know, because of violence in the streets and hundreds of protests across the country. There's no preparation for that, man. And I'm sure that you're, you're probably like me, that my head is spinning right now. This is a tough, tough time for our country and for, for every individual American. Uh, and so I think your your message about trying to keep an open mind and an open heart is really all that we can do right now. I mean, that that's sort of what's um, you know being called on uh, us as citizens. And you would hope uh, uh, being called on uh, the government, whether it's local uh, or national as well. But in that piece, Kareem basically says, hey, people are being uh, pushed beyond the brink. Um, what did you think when you read uh, his editorial, Michael? Did, did his words connect with you? I think the Kareem op-ed is required reading for uh, all of our listeners. I hope they seek it out in the Los Angeles Times. And one of the, the key points in it for me was just how um, he really hits that, you know, he doesn't condone rioting or looting, um, but he wants everyone to understand why it's happening. And if you can understand, then you can be a part of a long-term solution. And if you can't, then it's kind of a, just a cycle that won't be broken in any of our lifetimes. And for it's me, just, when I read... Isn't sorry. this kind of like a cause and effect issue, Michael? <clears throat> I mean, if we're going to be focusing all the attention on the looting or the burning buildings or the property damage, and those are all regrettable, you know, horrible things, right? But if you're only looking at the effects, you're missing the whole story here, right? 100%. And so f- for me, it's just, it's... You feel a hopelessness when the narrative and the conversation shifts so dramatically from a police, another police officer murdering another black man and what do we do about it and how do we get justice and how do we reform the system to look at these people trashing their neighborhoods, uh, behaving in a way that no one can condone. Uh, they are the problem, and that is just super frustrating, and it's super sad, and you wish that uh, more people were able to kind of stay on message and stay focused on what the real cause of 
all of the unrest is, which is generations of uh, of mistreatment and discrimination and inequality and police brutality. And so, uh, you know, on one hand for me, like, I read about history a lot. It fascinates me, um, particularly in matters dealing with uh, uh, African-American history and and, and, uh, and and race in this country. And I talk to uh, black family members uh, of mine who, who lived through the civil rights movement. And uh, a real quick story about uh, my father. In 1969, he sued a landlord who would not allow him uh, who would not rent him an apartment uh, because he's black. And uh, a federal judge ruled in my dad's favor, and the landlord was ended up being the first person in the United States who had to pay damages in violation of provisions that were set forth by the Civil Rights Act. And so, as a child, that story made me super proud, and uh, you know, I've, I viewed it as a, a, a signal and a marker of change in society. Um, and you want to believe that progress has been made ever since. Uh, that was 50 years ago. And instead, it hasn't. There's still housing discrimination. Banks are still less likely to support a Black-owned small business. Blacks are still more likely to end up in jail at disproportionate numbers. Blacks are more unlikely to be infected by, die, or have an appendage amputated by COVID-19, while being less likely to receive the proper medical care everyone in this country deserves. So in reality, there hasn't been a lot of meaningful progress, and that just adds to the despair and, and the growing discontent that's happening and what we're seeing around the country right now. I mean, look no further than Donald Sterling's housing practices, right? For decades uh, here, mm-hmm. here in Los Angeles as evidence that um, you may get a court ruling, but that's not going to change the country overnight. Michael, I had no idea about that uh, story about your father, but it really reminds me of what Dwayne Casey had to say, right? Because he put out a statement over the week mm-hmm. um, describing being you know, one of the first uh, African-American students at his elementary school to integrate it in rural Kentucky. And he just said flat out, people didn't want me there. <laughs> I was not welcomed. I did not feel comfortable. I was afraid. And and his message was, I've got an eight-year-old kid now, you know, almost 50 something years later. I'm not convinced that he's going to be any more welcomed in his school than I was. And I'm not convinced that he is going to have a better shot um, you know, at, uh, you know, winning the game of life uh, than maybe Dwayne Casey did by beating all the odds all those years ago. Um, you know, it, it puts a lot of things in perspective, and we're hearing all sorts of different testimonials like that, Michael. I mean, Doc Rivers comes out and discusses how his house was burned um, in 1997, and I mean, that's shocking. I mean, that's the type of thing that you would hope wouldn't have happened, uh, you know, so recently in the past, and yet it's something that he's had to live with here um, for decades as a coach. Um, I mean, we, the stories just kind of poured in um, one after another. Uh, I'm curious, though, maybe we should go back to kind of the first NBA voice in all of this, and that was Steven Jackson, right? I mean, the former player, Mm -hmm. people might remember him as kind of a loose cannon or a troublemaker. Obviously, he's involved with the malice at the palace, quote-unquote, the big brawl that led to major suspensions. And yet he emerged last week as a legitimate civil rights leader. Uh, He was all over... um, all over the story because he had a personal connection to George Floyd. I guess they called each other twin and brother because of their physical resemblance. They had grown up together uh, in the Houston, Texas area. 
And he got himself to Minnesota and was leading some of the original protests. Uh, I know Carl Anthony Towns and Josh Akogi were also in attendance um, at those uh, you know, first demonstrations. But uh, I think it was remarkable work by him and just evidence, again, of the responsive basketball community at large, whether it's former players, current players, coaches, organizations putting out statements. Uh, Michael Jordan, a guy who we were a little bit hard on uh, during our last dance analysis for trying to stay away from uh, political issues, came out quite strong uh, in favor of uh, civil rights and, and basic human uh, you know, decency and, and basically said he was flat angry by what had happened over the course of the, uh, the last week in a very pointed statement. So uh, I'm curious, I mean, whether it's Stephen Jackson or someone else, was there was there any other voice here over the last few days that really stuck out to you or, or you kind of gravitated towards? Yeah, you named a bunch of really, uh, I thought, helpful ones. I thought Doc Rivers' statement uh, was great just because he outlined a plan of action in terms of calling for people to vote uh, and people to uh, finally ap- start the the, the the turn for progress in the United States of America. I mean, it's it's it feels very hopeless right now. And obviously, no one statement or, or group of statements from NBA organizations or NBA players is going to do much. But I thought Doc was great. Um, I thought that uh, you mentioned Carl Anthony Towns uh, and Josh Okogi uh, for Cat in particular. Watching the the footage of him just walking the streets of Minneapolis with gloves on and a mask on his face, uh, you know, fist bumping with protesters and citizens, uh, imagining the intense grief that he pushed through to be there and to participate and to really stand up, uh, I thought was very powerful, knowing everything that he has has been through over the past couple months. Um, You mentioned the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar op-ed, which was... Uh, fantastic. Uh, right before we started recording, Greg Popovich did an interview with Dave Zirin of, at The Nation and uh, called out the lack of leadership in this country. And I think that that is uh, critical right now. Um, uh, that is one voice that uh, we sorely need. He's a, a leader in this field. Um in the NBA. And so I just think that you, you combine all those and then you add Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon more physically being a part of protests and leading peace, peaceful protests uh, in down in Atlanta over the weekend. I thought that that was fantastic to see. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's it, again, it's just it's there's a lot of exhaustion in the air, um, but there's a lot of energy, too. And it's always wonderful when people who have large platforms and influential voices uh, use it for the greater good. You know, Michael, we have a lot of listeners around the globe. That's why I call them the open floor globe. And you know, it kind of feels like the shoe is on the other foot right now. Um, you know, remember when we had the wildfires in Australia, you know, we'd be checking in on our listeners there. Hey, how's everything going? And and maybe some of the same type of exchanges during uh, mm-hmm. the original rounds of the coronavirus where it's like, what's going on in Italy or how's Europe handling this? And I got a lot of messages over the weekend from our listeners overseas saying like, hey, what's it like um, in the United States right now? And I sort of described, you know, we're under curfew here at this point. Um, You know, you described maybe some of the scene in in Brooklyn, but what else 
are you seeing or what else do you expect to see when you do get back to to Brooklyn? I mean, that we've got churches burning in Washington, D.C., right across the street from the White House. Um, you know, obviously a police precinct was uh, burned that many people saw on social media uh, in Minneapolis. There's clashes in the streets and, and graffiti and, and things of those nature. But like when you're thinking about going back to Brooklyn, uh, you know, after this trip to Michigan, like what do you expect to go home to? I mean, I've basically just seen what I think a lot of people have seen on social media there. Uh, and I'm hoping it doesn't look like the war zone that I'm imagining. And I don't even mean to be hyperbolic because that's exactly what the footage I've seen and a lot of other people have seen resembles. Um, you know, there's just a lot of violence, a lot of desecration, uh, you know, graffiti, uh, broken glass, broken storefronts, um, burning cop cars. I, I, I again, I, I personally, obviously, I do not condone rioting. I definitely do not condone looting, but I do understand why there is civil unre- unrest and, uh, it's almost like you're just it's 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 like you're you're out of answers as a community, uh, particularly Black Americans who are the ones that are are affected here, uh, and so you don't even know what else to do, and so you 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 lash out in a way that draws as much attention as possible. And in the United States of America, violence is what draws attention, and so that just kind of compounds the sadness and compounds the tragedy. And I know that George Floyd's family has spoken out about how you know, destroying towns and cities will not bring him back to life. And I think people should remember that before they pick up a brick and throw it at a storefront. No, I hear you on that. I mean, another thing that they've mentioned, and I think it speaks to another question that I've gotten from overseas or or just even from people here is why is this situation different? Why was George Floyd's murder the one that spawned hundreds of protests around the country And I think, um, you know, the initial response um, from local leaders and even national leaders left a lot to be desired, right? Um, Of course, the video itself was gruesome. There's no uh, question about that. We've seen a lot of gruesome videos similar, um, you know, in just, you know, coldness and calculating this uh, in terms of uh, killings here over the last few years. It's sad to say, but we've, we've had those situations here in the United States. I think... Uh, some of the unique conditions here to answer why this one spread so quickly, you did not have the immediate arrest of the of the first police officer, the one who was main uh, mainly involved, Derek Chauvin. I think that really upsets the people, um, especially when there was some discussion at a press conference by local authorities saying, hey, uh, you know, maybe there's evidence that contradicts that this was a murder. Uh, or a hesitation to kind of proceed with charges or a delay in in proceeding with charges. Um, You also had this idea of the original coroner's report trying to cast doubt on exactly how he died. I think that really upset people. Uh, And then obviously the national response was um, inflaming, right? It it didn't necessarily calm people down. It didn't bring them together. It didn't suggest ways to channel the frustrations. I mean, certainly you can imagine presidents in the past encouraging people to have peaceful protests, right? To let their voices be heard and, and to reassure, uh, you know, citizens out there that this wasn't right and, you know, justice will be done. And I think instead, unfortunately, um, you know, George Floyd's family uh, described, I believe it was his brother, described a kind of a short uh, phone conversation 
um, with the president where he felt like he wasn't really being heard. Uh, he felt like it was just over too quickly and that he wasn't able to express what was on his mind. And that's just really unfortunate. I mean, to me, that's that's sort of the, the least that anyone can do in, in such a terrible situation. And uh, I understand why that anger would only have grown rather than subsided uh, in the aftermath after the death, you know, based on the handling in the first day or two. Yeah, I want to echo a lot of what you just said. Uh, we do not have, and it's, it, it is very similar to why we are in the predicament we are in with regards to the coronavirus. There is no top-down leadership in this country right now. Um, the president is not a figurehead. The president is supposed to temper rage at our worst moments and keep every single U.S. citizen in mind when he speaks. And the one we currently have doesn't know how to do that. He is, as Greg Popovich said in his interview with The Nation, uh, you know, Trump is the opposite of a leader. He's the opposite of a problem solver. He has no, force, no foresight of understanding that his words are supposed to be heavier than every other person's on the planet. Instead, he practices division because that's all he knows, and it's why he's in the White House in the first place. So when you see the like the National Basketball Coaches Association have a clearer plan on how to attack systemic racism than the President of the United States, it's it's just highly, highly problematic. There's no doubt. And here, I think we should maybe offer some of our own suggestions for people who are listening, right? So what can people do here if they're upset if they're feeling like they're not getting direction, if they feel like they're out on an island, you know, watching these horrifying videos, you know, one after another after another come across on social media. It's been nonstop now for basically three or four days. And frankly, Michael, I'm not sure when it's going to stop, you know, or, or when it's really going to abate. I mean, as we saw in some previous tense moments in American history, this kind of thing can pop up over the course of an entire summer, right? Just, you know, maybe there's a couple mm -hmm. weeks break, boom, here it happens again. And when you have as many people without jobs, as many people, you know, stretch the limit from a financial standpoint, um, and people worried about their health and safety and, uh, you know, their ability to make payments on rent and everything else, um, it's a powder keg right now. And, and I'm certainly concerned about that. So what can people do? I think, first of all, uh, as you mentioned, Doc Rivers, said the big one, uh, it's vote. But it's not just about you voting, it's about making sure everyone's registered to vote properly, whether that's your friends, whether that's your family members, and it's you know about being that nag in your social circle and, and reaching out <laughs> to people and saying, hey, are you gonna vote? Are you actually registered? Do you know what you have to do? Going through that whole process with them. Look, it's it's a hassle, you know, and not every state makes it easy to vote. Um, and that's, you know, part of the deal too. And if you wanna overcome what some people feel like is an unfair system, uh, you're, you're going to have to likely do that through the system itself. Um, and so I think, you know, voter outreach for sure is a great place to start. And there's also the idea of if you have the ability to contribute financially, whether it's uh, civil rights organizations, um, you know, whether it is, you know, something along the lines of ACLU. I know you were describing some other possible options too, right, Michael, in terms of donating money? Yeah, I mean, I think that first and foremost in this moment, if you can and are able to and feel comfortable peacefully protesting, that is a priority because the whole point of a protest 
is to shine light on a problem, right? So if you if you're able to do that, I know that it's very difficult right now for a lot of different people just because of the climate and how dangerous it seems and not to mention there is an infectious disease going around and we don't want to spread it. So I understand all that, but if you can get out and peacefully protest, uh, I strongly encourage that. And then also, you know, there's these different for people who are protesting who have been arrested. There are different uh, uh, GoFundMe funds that have been set up around. Uh, you can just, I, I would assume, you know, go on Twitter, search, uh, Googling them. Uh, you know, there's the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Uh, Colin Kaepernick actually has a uh, organization, the Know Your, know Your Rights Camp, that you can uh, donate to, which basically, uh, you know, is hiring defense attorneys for people who have been uh, arrested in protest. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the ACLU, and then I just want to say real quick to echo the 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 importance of voting. I think a lot of people in this country look at the two party system, and they have uh, you know they have Republicans and Democrats, and they see just a lot of stagnancy and and not a lot of help on either side. But local elections are also extremely important. So voting for mayors and voting for different county executives who. Uh, end up choosing police commissioners and sheriffs and uh, appointing DAs. And all of this is really important to the particular fight that we're discussing right now and the particular problem with uh, law enforcement versus the black community. Yeah, and I would also say, like, in the biggest elections we have across the country, you know, there's that temptation to say, I'm only one person. What does that matter? I mean, those elections often... Uh, and this is a sign of our kind of divided culture here in the United States. They're often decided by a fraction of a percent of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's that close. So uh, if you're frustrated right now, you know, look within first and say, did I everything I possibly could do um, to get out the vote among people I care about? And did I volunteer my time potentially to help sign up other people? That's another great way to, to participate as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing I tell people, Michael, here is this. Um, you know, you can always amplify you know, voices on social media. You can always, you know, kind of signal that you're an ally in ways online too. But I want people to be careful as well because we are not programmed as humans to see 8, 10, 12, 14 straight hours of violence every single day, day after day after day. Uh, You know, we never had the ability as a society to do that prior to social media, right? And the level of violence that we're seeing across this country right now is, is, truly truly scary um and i think it can it can have damaging impacts if you're watching that stuff constantly so i want everyone to try to stay informed for sure i want them to you know be reading trusted news sources listening to trusted nba podcast sources hopefully um but (laughs) also take care of yourself too right michael because like ultimately if you want to be a part of the long-term solution you've got to be in a good spot mentally you've got to be able to to keep that proper distance and if you're just watching, you know, violence on your phone for 16 hours a day, it, 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 at some point that's going to leave a mark. And, and I just want people to make sure that they're they're taking care of themselves as well. 100%. I mean, I, again, I'm in, in Michigan. I'm not at home in Brooklyn, but I was following so closely all weekend long. I mean, it was, it was like just staring at my phone's screen and scrolling through Twitter and scrolling through Instagram. And instead of enjoying the nice weather out here and going for walks and, and, and whatever, I mean, there's not too much we can do, but being outside, it's like just staring at my phone and it, I, I've always, 
like I, I hear about how social media is able to impact one's mood and that has personally never really been the case for me but I was just straight up in a like a foul mood all weekend and I think that staring at my phone didn't do any good it was it was pretty damaging for myself I think and my psyche yeah, and I think a lot of people go through that. I mean, I certainly I know I feel my stress level rise, my anxiety rise when I'm watching this stuff on a regular basis. And so this is not to say tune out. That's not the message at all. But it's to, you know, put yourself on a little bit of a of a, a diet, so to speak, so that you're not just, you know, gorging on violence uh, day after day after day. And and try to put your, your time, obviously, as listeners to uh, as productive use as possible. Um, you know, certainly like making contributions to organizations like that has a positive impact. You'll feel better about yourself. If you do that, you'll feel like you're making a difference and that things maybe aren't as hopeless. Uh, I can say that from personal experience, and I'm sure many of you out there have, have been in that spot as well. Hey, Michael, I wanted to ask you a question about just sort of the general NBA's response, just, you know, around the league. I mean, Adam Silver had an internal memo where he was describing, Hey, this is a moment where I've really got to look even deeper because I haven't experienced a lot of the things that my African-American counterparts, whether it's players, coaches, executives, have to deal with on a, a daily basis. Um, you know, Clearly, lots of players are making themselves heard at the protest. Malcolm Brogdon uh, was describing how you know, basically his grandfather had marched with Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, Jalen Brown, I thought, was uh, you know, quite... Uh, a, a community leader, uh, you know, being from Georgia and going mm-hmm. down and making sure that uh, their message was heard loud and clear and, and broadcast, uh, you know, in, in kind of in the proper way, um, you know, across Georgia. And, and when you contrast the scenes from that march, which are peaceful, coordinated, very clear in what they're asking for, uh, very straightforward in message to the treatment of some African-American people in Georgia who are being pulled out of cars, ripped out of their cars by police officers, um, you know, at various points, it's a stark contrast and it does really send the message. Uh, But I'm curious when you step back from some of those specific examples and just kind of look at it in totality, um, you know, I know some people like to get into this idea of, oh, let's like nitpick everyone's statements to see if they're like woke enough on on Twitter, right? Because every team seems like they put out a, a statement and and to me that's that parsing is just like not helpful in any way and it's just a waste of everybody's time right but how did you think the community at large responded and was there anything that maybe the NBA its players or its teams could have done differently or or better I don't know if there's anything they could have done noticeably different than than what was than what happened I mean I, I was pretty impressed by the specific examples that you've given and that we've kind of already discussed, particularly, you know, Jalen Brown driving 15 hours, I believe he said, down to Atlanta, <clears throat> his home state, uh, to not in, not 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 just participate in a peaceful protest, but to organize one is just wildly powerful and influential. And so... I mean, you look around the NBA and uh, I, you, you even look at their Instagram pages today. We're recording on Monday and, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, hey, how can we help clean up our communities? I'm going to, I mean, I saw Robert Covington post that he's going to downtown Nashville, I believe, uh, to help clean up uh, and that if anyone wants to help, this is where he's going to be. Uh, so, I mean... 
no one is like paying them to do that. That is just what they feel is right. And it's awesome that uh, from in this regard that the NBA is uh, has a lot of individuals in it who understand right from wrong and who are willing to use their platforms uh, in the fight for good. Yeah, and I think that uh, one real development we saw was sort of like, hey, are you with us or against us, right? Like, did you see the Lakers all put out that message, uh, LeBron, Anthony mm-hmm. Davis? And you're, you're sort of like challenging sympathizers to step up to the plate. And I think that's a little bit of an evolution, right? I mean, I think that we're now here multiple years after the original kind of I can't breathe moment, which you know, spawn this whole back and forth of like, well, black lives matter, or is it all lives matter? Or is it blue lives matter? And like, I think we've, I hope anyways, we've moved past the kind of uh, the the nuts and bolts of that little debate to getting to a situation where it's like, hey, uh, there are no bystanders, right? You either kind of support your athletes uh, as human beings um, or you're on the wrong side of history. And I think that's a development that's important. And I think athletes, not only NBA players, by the way, WNBA players, NFL players have played a very, very important role in, in bringing to the forefront. And so that's why I would say we have seen some level of progress here. I do think that this conversation has changed. People aren't necessarily going right back to the same old bunkers uh, and that there has been uh, you know, a little bit Uh, a a little bit of movement in terms of the understanding of how dire of a situation is. Um, Like Adam Silver said in his thing, this is a moment of greater introspection. It's very easy for any white fan to hear what Colin Kaepernick is saying or what another African-American might say about getting pulled over uh, regularly uh, by the police and dismiss it because that never happens to them, right? And I think that what we've seen develop in this week is the idea that it's getting much harder for that hypothetical fan to dismiss this stuff, right? Because it's not going away, because it's in their face, and because there's, it's clearly energized millions of people all across the country. And I would consider that progress personally. That's why I think this is an important moment in history, not just because of uh, the scale of everything, but because we are starting to see a little bit of movement. 100%. And I guess... What is important here is that it's not all for naught and that there's actual uh, systemic progress instead of uh, statements that show uh, an allyship. Uh, and those are those are nice, I guess, to see and read. Yeah. Um, uh, the, what you're trying to say is equality is not coming one meme at a time, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. And it, it makes me think of the, the piece that Kyle Korver... Uh, wrote in the Players' Tribune about a year ago about white privilege and his understanding and his coming to grips with uh, knowing that he has born in advantages over a lot of his coworkers, if not a vast majority of them. Uh, And that mentality, I think, when the piece was first published was kind of sneered at a tiny little bit by some people. But that is, it's critical because in order for any of any progress to actually happen, like the black community needs white people to be on their side and just as aggressive and forceful as they are for their rights. You know, as I look forward here to what's going to unfold over the next week, I really do think Adam Silver and the NBA are now in an even more impossible spot than they were previously, Michael. And I think it was good that he mentioned 
um, in his internal memo to staffers about how this is a moment where he needs to kind of step back and reflect and think about things. Because, like, for example, remember we heard about that phone call uh, from the NBA players uh, a couple of weeks ago where, like, LeBron and KD and, and Damian Lillard, they all kind of resolve to play and, like, now is the moment. We're ready to do this. Let's go try to put these playoffs on. I wonder if they held that phone call today, if there would be different feelings or a different sentiment about the excitement of trying to return, you know, during this uh, this particular moment. And for Silver, uh, there's an optics question as well, right? I mean, you, you've got a, a league with majority white owners and majority black players. Uh, you've got a situation, as you mentioned earlier, where the coronavirus is killing and harming uh, people of color at higher rates uh, than Caucasians. And therefore, you've got people within the NBA community who are basically at a, at a higher risk uh, of serious consequences because of this. And you're trying to put on games uh, at this particular moment where you're balancing the health and safety of those people with the need to generate television revenue. Uh, and now you're you're doing it in a climate that is, uh, you know, layered on top of uh, nationwide unrest and fear and uneasiness uh, from members of the minority communities about their their place in society. I mean, this is a tough, tough spot. Do you get what Silver's talking about in terms of he needs to take a step back and like just kind of reassess things or like think about um, all of these dynamics? I mean, there's really no way for his own individual experience to be fully aligned with what a Dwayne Casey or a Doc Rivers or a Michael Jordan, or a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, has gone through personally, right? Yeah, it's it's really difficult, if not impossible. Uh, it does remind me, though, of this experiment my second grade teacher did with our class, where he basically wanted to transport us back to 1960s America. Oh, and my God. Yeah, it was very interesting, but as someone who does not remember anything from kindergarten through, uh, let's say, 12th grade, uh, except this experiment, it was obviously successful. And uh, I was in the class as, I mean, I, I was in the class as basically one of two minorities as it was, but what the experiment was, was uh, basically split up half the class where half of the first half of the week they are quote unquote white and the other half is quote unquote black and then you flip it around for the second half of the week and it, it was just like a little traumatizing but very uh, it, a great educational experience because you wait, know, so you, wait are you are you getting like lesser toys or or access to supplies or like what's the deal yeah basically you'd go to recess and if you were quote unquote white you would have you know footballs new footballs new basketballs you would be able to oh play you were allowed to play on the basketball court that was outside and if you were black you had like a kickball that had like basically that was like punctured by a knife. And so it's oh. <laughs> just like uh, no fun for you if you were black, basically, and you had secondhand uh, toys to play with. And I still remember trying to play a, a checkers game when I was in the black group. Uh, and looking over, and first of all, the the checkers pieces were like broken, and there weren't even enough to play a game. And over here, we have the white kids, and they're like playing with Game Boys and stuff. So, it was a uh, long story short, 
very uh, uh, purposeful and meaningful exercise that I like. I don't think that you could do this today, but if you're trying to teach uh, people what it is like to be black, I think starting at the youngest age as possible and educating them in a way where they will f- really understand it uh, helps long term. So I don't even know if that's even Dude. related to what we were just no, saying. But that's- it absolutely is. I mean, that is what you're describing is like the ultimate privilege check. A few thoughts. First of all, that is not flying in 2020, Michael. I think you might have been the last class to ever go through that. I, th- I think that local school districts or just like political pressure from parent groups or whatever else would probably make that um, an untenable exercise. But uh, clearly it left a mark, which is the whole point. And it's getting you to kind of question everything about uh, your existence or a white person's existence and and what they have available to them. And, And that's kind of what I'm getting at here with Silver. This is kind of a privilege check for the NBA too, right? Like, aren't they sitting around in these boardrooms, like coming up with these ideas of, oh, how can we get Zion Williamson into the playoffs so we can make some extra television revenue? Oh, you know, how long can we make it before we're like overcompromising player health, right? Because, I mean, the facts are, if they if health and safety of the players was the top and only priority, there's no games at all at this point, right? Zero games. I mean, right. So they're already kind of playing this calculus, and I think that the the racial undertones um, among the decision makers and the players themselves are uh, often an overlooked factor, and here kind of can't be. And I think that this winds up being a little bit of a moment of truth for Adam Silver too, right? Because um, ultimately, he's going to be the lead uh, decision maker uh, in this entire process. Are they going to play with 16 teams? Are they going to play with 20 teams? Are they going to play with 22 teams? Is this whole thing going to work? How many people are going to be sick? Who's going to be responsible uh, if someone gets sick and, and dies? And to me, a lot of those questions just look different after the last week. Not because the the facts have changed in terms of the risk factors or who can get sick, but because there's just a huge spotlight on that aspect of this dynamic uh, that really might not have been there prior to George Floyd's death. Could you imagine a world where Adam Silver cuts his losses and uh, cancels the rest of this season, gets ready for the 2020-2021 season, and instead just decides to uh, create a a world where uh, players who would otherwise be in the campus-like atmosphere, the, the bubble, where they are instead allowed to go around the country and speak freely about uh, civil rights and they are able to uh, plan protests and peacefully protest themselves and be in communities that need them and use their voice for a different type of social progress. I mean, we talked about this a lot when The Last Dance was on, at least I did, about how the whole point of being that popular professional basketball player is not necessarily to win basketball games. It is to promote change for the greater good with your voice and your platform. And I think it would be really cool if that happened. But again, I think I'm just a little naive because there's just (laughs) way too much money involved for that to ever happen. No, but I do think that it's time to kind of rethink everything, right? I mean, have priorities changed? If you're the players, what happens if these um, these protests do continue? What happens if there is the need for that kind of leadership in the community? 
Um, you know, what if you're in that Orlando campus environment and all of a sudden something happens in Atlanta and you're Jalen Brown and you want to go lead a protest, right? Uh, are you stuck? Are you confined in Orlando? Are you able to leave and, and not come back? Uh, if you go to Atlanta, I mean, who could begrudge a player in that situation uh, for wanting to take a stand and, and turning their back on basketball? I mean, I certainly could, and I, I think a lot of people should not. So uh, that is, uh, like I said, it's just another dynamic that they're going to have to consider. Now, I think you're you're probably onto something. I, I wouldn't call you naive, but um, I, I think maybe the world is just a more cynical place, right? I think yeah. that they've got the ball. The ball is in motion here for the for the NBA return. They've they've gotten quite a bit down the path. We actually heard Michelle Roberts last week be like, "Hey, it's time to make a call, Adam." Uh, he had calls with the NBA GMs on Thursday and the Board of Governors on Friday. That did not produce a playoff format, uh, but something along those lines is expected to come to fruition um, this week. And so that's kind of why it winds up being a moment of truth. Not only does Adam Silver need to come up with his finalized plan, put a timeline in place, communicate that to the players, make sure that they're still all completely bought in after everything that's happened, um, and then they move forward. But he's also going to have to sell it to the public at a very difficult time to do that. Um, and it's that's what he gets paid the big bucks for, but it's certainly just a challenging spot um, for him to be in. You know, we got uh, an email here on this question of, you know, what's really safe, right? And we got our buddy, Dr. Bill on Instagram, and he emailed in uh, Michael with some really good thoughts. He says, look, if the NBA wants to make this as safe as possible, they should only be inviting playoff teams. They should be testing all players who are going to be in the bubble two weeks in advance and then ask them to self-isolate for two weeks. They should test everybody at the start of the playoffs and offer tests to anyone who wants to retest after that. They should limit family members and media members. And he says, even if you do all that, the risk is still high with that plan. Uh, we're seeing manufacturing sites open and close multiple times in the same week due to people testing positive already. Bringing anyone additional to the venue adds exponential rather than linear risk. The key is to limit the number of people and interactions between teams who are not playing each other. So Dr. Bill laid it out there pretty straightforwardly, Michael. He's like, this is not particularly safe. Here's a few steps that you can uh, do to make it safer. Uh, but here's another factor. Are players going to want to be away from their families potentially uh, for months uh, in the playoffs during what's obviously a very, very tense moment. I mean, certainly I, I could understand that uh, that framework changing for the for player mindset as well uh, based on what's happened here over the last week. So there's legitimate challenges. And, um, you know, Dr. Bill maybe came through and, and scared us straight a little bit, uh, Michael. But hey, by the way, he threw in one postscript. And he, here's just a, a brief moment of levity. He writes, P.S. On average, 75% of people who take the nasal swab coronavirus test shed tears just like Michael did. So it might not be quite as painful as Michael described, but it's still pretty bad. So what do you think, Michael? Um, <laughs> Dr. Bill, he's, he's got your back to a, a certain degree. Uh, but what do you make of um, you know his overall approach here on the safety side? I'm honored to have Dr. Bill in my corner. Thank you so much, Dr. Bill. Um, this is exactly what we were kind of discussing previously about uh, it's kind of just common sense, right? Like if you want to reduce your risk, you would have the fewest amount of teams there possible, if not no season at all. But for the sake of, you know, the argument of we need to play basketball during a global pandemic or risk losing, uh, you know, hundreds of millions more dollars, um, 
16 teams just starting the playoffs and keeping it as simple as you can just makes the most sense. And it seems to me like there's growing momentum towards uh, having a play-in tournament and 20 or 22 teams and letting someone like Damian Lillard participate, letting someone like Zion Williamson participate. And as a basketball fan, I am... Uh, very excited about that because I love watching Damian Lillard, particularly in a playoff setting. I am th- I cannot wait to see what Zion Williamson looks like uh, playing basketball again. Uh, that's just it's awesome watching him. So I like a lot of more casual fans would be more in tune to tuning in potentially. But as a human being, I'm kind of like this is dumb. And uh, if you have to do it, and you really are preaching safety uh, uh and the good health of everyone who participates as the priority than 16 teams i don't understand why you would do any more michael i'm reading between the lines as you're talking and you you concluded with 16 teams makes the most sense i kind of feel like in your heart of hearts the number is a little bit lower for you i i feel like you might think that the right number is zero teams here and they should just you know punt this thing until next season i mean where, where is your Where's your mind and your heart at at this idea that maybe the NBA should just cancel and backtrack here, that this has all become too many red flags, too many flashing warning lights, you know, just too tense of an atmosphere, too many variables to juggle, too many things you can't control. Like, uh, I mean, what, are, are you in this, are you in the camp that says, hey, come on, let's just cancel this. What are they doing? I mean, look, with everything that happened over the weekend, which I think you and I agree is not going anywhere anytime soon, could you imagine a scenario where, say, uh, uh, you know, there is even more violence uh, uh, between, say, the National Guard and a protester, uh, where potentially more people die, uh, and then you know that night in America there's NBA games? Uh, how is that a good look for anybody? During a global pandemic, yeah. nonetheless. Is there any way to spin it? Can you be like, hey, society needs sports? I mean, people love to say that. I saw commentators saying that today. I got to be honest, after the weight of this past weekend, that stuff really falls on my deaf ears. I don't know about you. Is this idea that like basketball is going to save us from yeah. um, these Stop. issues when, <laughs> you know, I can understand players you know, the, the one benefit potentially is that they could use it as a showcase for their feelings. I mean, we saw that with the I Can't Breathe t-shirts. Um, we saw that with some of the Donald Sterling protests that the Clippers did. I mean, there have been moments, you know, the Trayvon Martin uh, response from the Miami Heat, where having that television showcase to do that makes a big difference because you do have millions of people watching it and millions more seeing it come across on social media. For example, it was a German soccer player over the weekend uh, who had justice for George Floyd on his shirt. I'm sure tens of millions of people saw that image uh, across the globe, right? So there is some power from that standpoint, and there is some benefit to trying to reestablish some level of normalcy and fun for your viewing public, I suppose. But that's just a tough sell right now, isn't it? You know, I always thought that the the idea of protesting with, uh, shirts or whatever um, is it, it is visible. It makes the visibility higher, and that is good. But 
you know, particularly like the Donald Sterling Sterling case where they take their warm up jerseys off before game one of that playoff series, I think, or, or in the middle of the playoff series between the Clippers and the Warriors and they throw them at center court. Um, you know, what would have been even more powerful is not playing the game or sitting out a game or threatened, seriously threatening to sit out a game or uh, delaying it at some point or, or postponing it. And if you want to draw attention, believe me, that will draw attention way more than anything you could put on your body. So um, I think well, that- that's a great, great point. Could we see a boycott if they come back and play? I mean, let's say something else does happen in a worst-case scenario. Would they boycott one of those games? It'd be an awful lot easier to boycott Mm -hmm. a random game in Disney World where there's no tickets being sold and it's just made for TV um, if you had a group of players who was just, you know, incensed by, say, the latest development at some point in July or August. um, That could – I could easily see that happening. Which brings us back to why do we need to do this in the first place? You know what I mean? Like – so I go back and forth, like, you know, over the weekend, I tweeted something about how the NBA shouldn't uh, play any games if they really weren't prioritizing health and safety. And a lot of people are in my mentions about, uh, you know, you don't love the NBA, you don't want sports to come back. It's like, I I can guarantee you that I've watched more NBA basketball than 99.9% of the people who walk this earth uh, believe that. So I love this game more than anything to death. And... Uh, no one wants it the, to come back more than me, but right, the people who love the game the most want to protect it the most. That's how I kind of look at it, right? One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you, man. I I share your mixed feelings as well. Um, I mean, this is not something that again, Adam Silver couldn't have planned for this. He's been as deliberate and as uh, you know, group oriented and holistic as a leader could possibly be over the last two months. But at no point did he have to, you know, have a conference call with the GMs or the governors or even the players and say, like, hey, guys, what's our contingency if the country is on fire? Right. Um, And certainly uh, they're they're going to have to make do with the best of a bad situation. And also, by the way, their backs are up against the wall. Right. I mean, this is kind of the the put up or shut up time here. Uh, If you delay any longer in making your decision, it's going to be harder to get the players into their markets. It's harder to have the requisite time for the the quarantine periods to get the games back on track by late July. The further you push back the start date of this uh, season, the further you're going to push back the start of uh, next season, which is already kind of on track for, you know, being in that December window. So, you know, this is a very, very, very tough spot where, you know, the the clock is running down uh, very quickly uh, after months of waiting. I, I don't envy those in the league office this week, and certainly my heart goes out to people uh, who are being influenced by this uh, on a personal basis uh, around the country. I mean, you know, basketball and the business of basketball is one thing. Uh, real life is real life. And of course, that's the bigger priority here. And, uh, you know, a guy like Adam Silver has to weigh uh, both of those factors. All right, we're going to close out with one final email, Michael, from Jeff in Rhode Island, who I think makes a great point. He says, I love the podcast. And and that wasn't the great point, but it was a great (laughs) point. Uh, He continues, I listen to a lot of NBA podcasts and shows, and it seems like it hasn't dawned on people yet that next season is not going to be a normal season. I realize they are still trying to finish this one, and I hope that goes well. But the coronavirus will not be gone by December. The idea of 30 teams playing 82 games flying across the country for the first half of next year is impossible. 
Even if a vaccine is available by December, which is very unlikely, it takes a long time to administer that vaccine to 8 billion people globally, or even 340 million people in the United States. I don't know what will happen next season with the NBA, but things won't be back to normal. So I think it's a great point from Jeff. Michael, I mean, are we in a situation where this idea of the Disney World campus is going to be a test drive for what they might have to do uh, next season? I mean, obviously, we're looking forward into the future, you know, quite a ways, but I don't see any real way they're going to be able to play games in front of thousands of fans by December or have the need to travel from empty arena to empty arena like usual um, or anything else. I mean, I, I do think he raises a great point here, which is, this coronavirus thing has not, you know, had some magic pill solution here. Um, it is going to be an extended, um, you know, situation that's going to influence uh, part or all of the 2021 season. I think Jeff makes a lot of really, really smart points here. Um, I, I too cannot imagine why 30 teams would fly across the country to play in empty or semi-empty arenas. Um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, uh, but on the other hand, like it's just too soon to speculate about anything that'll happen in December of 2020. There's the, 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 the 8 billion people globally, he mentions in the 340 million people in the United States, um, in terms of administering a vaccine, uh, if the NBA were to come back, I think that, you know, we're, what we're talking about is just the people involved. Um, I know he's referring to fans and everything, but what I'm referring to is just like if there was a vaccine, getting it to people who are directly involved with the NBA probably and sadly would be a lot easier than getting it pushed out to the greater population. So I think so that you what would you're be- saying is there's going to be a cardboard box marked NBA on the uh, <laughs> on the big playing with the vaccines coming from the factory and they're going to get them first and they're going to at least be able to play safely um, even if there's no fans in attendance that's my my rough cynical assumption yes exactly yeah i mean i think you're you're probably right on that um but i do think that we should be uh weighing this current decision that adam silver has to make about this this season with an eye towards the idea that we don't know anything about next year, right? And that if you did just cancel this season um, out of hand, it's easy to say, okay, we'll just, you know, uh, save your bullets and, and come back next year and everything will be, uh, you know, easier with the benefit of time. And, and things may not get any easier with the benefit of time at that point. And that's where the financial realities come in. Because if, if you're, you know, trying to maintain interest in a sport and you know it, it shuts down for nine months that's very very difficult for individual franchises and for the league itself um and, and you can't really necessarily bank on all those fans being ready to go uh, as soon as you're back up say in december especially if you're not playing in front of uh, actual crowds and you're still stuck playing on like a, a campus type environment so they got major challenges and and that's another thing are you going to put the entire league on a campus for eight months you know, to play all these games and then play the playoffs, uh, it's going to be very, very, very challenging. But that's a problem for another day, Michael. And look, I think we can both agree we've got enough problems for today, don't we? We can just worry about these. We don't need to look into the future for, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, tomorrow's problems. But guys, uh, you know, I, I'm not that I apologize, but I do acknowledge 
kind of a somber tone, serious tone uh, today's podcast. Given the circumstances, uh, there was no uh, alternative on that front. But we are going to be coming back with a lighter-hearted episode later this week where Michael and I are going to draft competing all-quarantine teams. Which players are going to be the best in that Disney World campus-style environment. Who's going to be able to create the better team? Who's going to manage and draft better? You guys are going to be able to decide. It's going to be Michael versus Ben, a, a, a clash of the titans. Probably like Magic and Michael in 91, frankly. Uh, a redux here uh, in 2020, Michael. So uh, until then, though, the Open Floor Globe can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, help us out by scrolling down and tapping five stars where it says rate and review. You can also find Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at Ben.Golliver. Please send us your questions. Open Floor Mail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com Michael we got a bunch of great questions in the hopper already but guys keep those coming we can't wait to address them on the next episode and then heading into next week all right Michael uh, until uh, later this week when you and I are going to be drafting head to head I cannot wait I will talk to you talk soon Ben